I have the esteemed privilege to be able to work with um, Jim and Melanie. And I first met them during our small group time, our life groups that meet on Sunday nights. And um, just getting to know them and getting to see their story and hear how they've just lived for Christ. And it's just been inspiring. Jim and Melanie are incredible leaders. They are so devoted to their family, and they love their family so well. And you see that just in how they bring these kids into their family. They are so dedicated and consistent, and they love our studio 5th and 6th graders. Just to see their excitement and their energy that they bring every week um, that they serve to the kids is infectious. The kids can come and they can ask those hard questions. They can just really, you know, lay those burdens down. And Jim and Melanie are there to pick them up. They're there to encourage them. The reason I decided to volunteer in Studio 56 is because I really thought about our kids um, and, and where they were going to be when they were in 5th and 6th grade, and I really wanted them to have people that would pour into them. I remember how invaluable having that uh, someone speak into my life at that age was and was looking to pay that forward. Jim and Melanie are consistent, amazing, fantastic leaders that make kids' own a better place. Jim and Melanie are our Sloan Creek campus heroes. Yeah, that's a cool story. Yeah, so in this new series that we're just launching today, we're going to hear lots of stories of you guys uh, being heroic in a lot of different ways. It's going to be fun to see. Well, my name's Greg. I'm one of the uh, pastors here on staff. And wherever you're located right now, whatever campus you're at, or if you're joining us online, I am so excited that I get the chance to be with you this weekend as we launch a brand new series called Ordinary Heroes as we look at the Old Testament book of judges. But before we uh, launch into that, let me just say real quick that if you were not here last weekend and you didn't get a chance to hear Jeff's message, let me encourage you to please go to our website and watch it because last weekend was Vision Weekend and Jeff gave such a compelling message about where we are as a church right now and where we believe God is leading us in the future. And if you didn't get a chance to pick up one of these talking about Here for Good, um, that is the name of our, of our next project of this next season that we're going to be in over the next couple of years as a church. Um, make sure you grab one of these. They're in the lobby spaces of whatever campus you're at. Um, and if you're online or just go to our website, you can learn more about Here for Good. Um, this is going to be just an incredible season for us as a church. But this weekend, I'm excited because I get the chance to introduce uh, what I think is just a fascinating book in our Old Testament called Judges. And it's fascinating because the story of the book of Judges is our story. It's about a group of people, uh, the Israelites, God's people in the Old Testament, that found that um, staying on the right path over a long period of time consistently was just really, really hard to do. And wouldn't it just be awesome if we could just sort of pick a path, you know, maybe in our Christian lives, sort of pick the type of life that we want to live, and we just stick with it like unwavering, and we stay on the right path, and we're people of focus, and we're people of discipline. I mean, and, and maybe you're that way, and good for you. That's awesome. Um, you have permission to check out, you know, during this message. Uh, you can, you know, spend time on your phone or just think about your autobiography and how you're going to help the rest of us, you know, live a great life because um, for most of us, we just have a lot of starts and stops and a lot of good intentions, particularly in our Christian lives. And we mean well, but we don't always do well, at least consistently over time. And that is the story of judges. And there's so much that we can learn about how to be people of sort of long obedience and how to, how to miss a lot of pain 
along the way. It's also a story of God's faithfulness over time, even in the midst of all of our missteps and all of our mistakes. And so it's going to be a really interesting series. Now, most of the series, we're going to be focusing on the different individual judges that, uh, that the book focuses on. And when I say judge, uh, don't think Judge Judy. Uh, these are primarily military leaders who have uh, significant spiritual and cultural importance as well. Um, and we're calling the series Ordinary Heroes. But as you, as you will see as we go through this, um, calling some of these people heroes is going to feel like a bit of a stretch. In fact, for some of them, calling them ordinary is going to feel like that's pretty generous because it's going to seem like anybody in their right mind could have done better than some of these folks. And that is, um, that's kind of part of it because God uses them anyway. And so it's, it's really encouraging to see. In fact, God seems to want to highlight their ordinariness because the, the worse the judge, the more space they're given in the book. Uh, arguably, the very best of all the judges is someone we never even talk about. His name is Othniel. Uh, we don't talk about him because he's given four verses in the book. The biggest loser in the book is Samson, and he's given four chapters. And the message is, if, if God can use Samson, then there's hope for all of us. So uh, it's going to be an encouraging and very interesting series to see who God chooses to use and how and in such great ways. But I'm not going to actually focus on any of the judges this weekend. Uh, I have the opportunity to introduce the book, and we're going to talk a little bit about the history, a little bit about the background, and also talk about a really important theme that works its way through the book that's going to help us understand what this book is all about. And the first thing to, to, to help us with that is to see that when the, when the book of Judges begins, uh, we see God is in a little bit of a conundrum as to what to do with the nation of Israel. So look, look at what it says in Judges chapter 2, verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give your ancestors. And I said, I would never break my covenant with you. For your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in this land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars. But you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So God's in a little bit of a pickle because he made a promise that he would bless his beloved people, but he had also sworn that he would not bless them as disobedient people. So how is God supposed to work through that tension? Because on one hand, um, God is holy and just, and he cannot tolerate or sit back and live with evil. But on the other hand, he is loving and faithful, and he cannot tolerate the loss of the people that he has committed himself to. It is a huge, like seemingly irresolvable tension, which, by the way, is also one of the primary tensions of the entire Bible. Uh, if, if you are new to the Bible, I just gave you a major theme. How does God balance his love and grace and mercy and faithfulness with his holiness and justice and wrath against sin? Hence, he does it at the cross. Uh, but we are now in the book of Judges, so we are about 1,200 years before the cross. So how is he going to solve that tension here? Is he going to give up on his people 
And if so, what does that say about his faithfulness? I mean, he did make a promise to them, after all. Or is he going to give in to his people and just sort of let them do whatever they want to do? Um, that's, that's the tension. And to kind of understand, um, to, to, to get a little bit of backstory, understand how this is playing out in Judges, we do need to look back. Because when Judges begins, uh, when the book of Judges begins, it gives very little backstory. In fact, it kind of assumes that whoever's reading this book already knows a few things about Israel's history up to this point. So... Um, Judges is the seventh book of our Old Testament. It picks up on story themes that have been playing out over the preceding six books. And so just really briefly, let me say that back in Genesis, God chooses Abraham. And he tells Abraham that your descendants are going to be a great nation and they will be my people. And that promise is passed down from Abraham to his son and to his grandkids and sort of to multiple generations. It's repeated several times in Genesis that you will be my people. I will be your God. I will give you a land of promise and I will bless you as a nation. Well, then several generations later, uh, they, they, they do become a numerous people, but they are enslaved in Egypt. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, if you saw the movie, let my people go. And, uh, and there's all this drama around plagues. And uh, finally, Pharaoh lets uh, the Israelites go. And, and Moses leads them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And God reiterates his promise. You are my people. I will be faithful to you. I will bless you. But while they're in the wilderness, he says, you will only experience my blessings when you are living in obedience to me. And so he gives them the law. And that's in the book of Exodus. And that's where the tension is set up. And that tension is sort of put to the test while they're in the wilderness because the people grumble against God and they lie about God and they refuse to obey. And God says, I am still going to be faithful to my promise to this people, but this generation shall not see the promised land. And so they wander around in the desert. He makes them wander in the desert for 40 years until everyone of that generation dies off except for two faithful people, Caleb and Joshua. So then... Um, after that 40 years, Joshua gets the chance to lead a whole new generation. You can imagine it's probably a, a young generation, a whole new generation into the promised land. And they discover in the book of Joshua that if they just obey, if they just take that first step of obedience and they cross in and they fight the battles that God is going, that God has called them to fight, if they just obey, that God would be faithful with his part. And it says God sends the hornet before them and there's and their enemies flee and so the, the the book of joshua is all about god's faithfulness he did what he said he would do but the problem is the joshua generation didn't finish the job god had told them to drive out all of the nations that were living in the land of canaan and he told them that not for like venge, vengeful reasons or for economic reasons or for military reasons but for spiritual reasons he didn't want his people taking on the religious practices of the, of, the, of the people that were there, taking on the cultural practices of the people that were there. He didn't want them making covenants with them or intermarrying them. He wanted them to tear down their altars. You see, they were in a very fragile state 
in their development as the people of God, as, the nation, as a nation. And God wanted to give them a land, sort of a safe place they could develop as a home country for them to grow into the people of God so that other nations could look in and see, oh, that's what it looks like when the one true God lives in and through his people. But the problem is the Joshua generation, they only fight enough battles to sort of wedge themselves into, into the promised land. They don't drive out the other nations that are there. They don't tear down their altars. And they begin to make alliances and covenants with those people groups. And so if we pick it up where we were just reading, you know, God said, and we just, we already read this first verse, for your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in this land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars, but you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare, I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. So God is saying, if this is what you want, then that's what I'm going to give you. It was supposed to be a nation, a land where there's there's like one nation living in a land of promise that was both culturally and spiritually solidly monotheistic, you know, worshiping one God alone. And instead, they're living with Moabites and Amorites and Jebusites and otherites and they are, and there's Baal worship going on and Asherah worship going on. It was supposed to be a monotheistic culture, and now they're living in pluralism, not monotheism. Well, there's lots of choices now and lots of things vying for their trust, which is sort of like our culture that we live in. And in that environment, we're going to see them make the same mistakes over and over and over and over again which is the, kind of the theme, one of the major themes of the, the book of Judges is the cycle that the, that the people go through. It is a repetition that, that they go through again and again. This is the cycle in Judges. It starts off with half-hearted devotion and idolatry, which leads into a season of pain where God allows natural consequences to occur. Which leads to Israel crying out for help and they rededicate themselves and this time it's going to be different and we're going to follow you, God. And God intervenes. He listens and out of his faithfulness he hears them and he intervenes and he raises up a judge to be their rescuer. Which leads to a season of peace. Which leads to half-hearted devotion and idolatry. Which leads to a season of pain. And this is the cycle that repeats over and over and over in Judges. Twelve times. They go through this. And this is how God wrestles with that tension, because every time they call out to him, he listens to them and he responds in faithfulness. But every time they choose idolatry, he lets the natural consequences of that play out. And then they cry out to him and they make dedications and they say, this is going to be different. And they have such good intentions. It's just their good intentions don't last very long. And we know how that goes, right? We know how it feels to have really good intentions that don't just, that don't last very long. We just finished the, um, the month of February, which means we are now two months into your New Year's resolution. How's it going? 
You know, the good news is we're also at the beginning of Lent. And so if you want to give up something for Lent that you already gave up for your New Year's resolution, um, that's fine. You get another shot. That's, that's fine. When, when Israel goes through this cycle, there's a little bit more at stake than um, the New Year's resolutions. In fact, we're going to see them go through a tremendous amount of preventable pain. And it's going to cause many of us uh, to ask, like as we read through this, like what was their deal? Why couldn't they just stay on path? I mean, why do they keep making the same mistakes again and again and again? And it's easy to look at this book and say, what a bunch of morons. But that might be a little too harsh. I mean, considering the fact, like, we know what this is like, right? We know what it's like to fall into the same sin over and over and over again. The same patterns of sin that cause us so much trouble, and yet we keep going back to it. This is our story. And we have the chance now to look back, to read this story, and to learn from their mistakes, and to see some of the things that they didn't do, that could have done, that would have broken the cycle. And so if their cycle is our cycle, we have a chance to learn. And as we look at this book, there's three things that I would like to I'd like to point out that I think would be helpful for all of us to wrestle with if we want to break this cycle in our lives. And the first one is this. Idolatry is not what we think it is. The half-hearted devotion that we see in the book of Judges is usually associated with idolatry. And that idolatry is, is usually around the worship of either of Baal and Asherah. Two gods that were part of a larger fertility religion. Uh, the worshipers of Baal and Asherah wanted larger families, larger herds, larger flocks, um, abundant crops, all things that were associated with material prosperity. And so as weird as it is for us, as strange as it sounds to like worship statues or to do, or especially when you read about what was associated with Baal worship and what those worship practices were, as strange as that is to us, we have to remember that that, those were the best ideas that their culture had to offer. Those were the answers that their culture was offering to the questions that they were asking and the biggest things that were on their mind. I don't, personally, I'm not convinced that the Israelites felt like they were leaving God for another religion. I mean, they end up turning back to God again and again and again. They knew where to go. They were just co-opting the best ideas that their culture had to offer. And they began trusting in those things for their own material prosperity. They fell into idolatry for economic reasons, not religious reasons. If you were in that culture and you had concerns about your herd or about your crops, you knew exactly where to go and what to do. You could offer this sacrifice on that hill you know, to, where that altar is to that God. That, that, those were the answers that their culture had because on every mountaintop, on every hilltop, there would have been a shrine or, or an altar to, to Baal or an Asherah pole where there were man-made statues and there were man-made solutions to the biggest problems they were wrestling with and the questions they were asking. And they began trusting in those things. You see, at its heart, idolatry is just the blurring of lines between God who creates and the creation he created. That's all it is. 
It's trusting in lesser things. And so even though it sounds so Old Testament, uh, idolatry, you know, worshiping little statues, I think we, it would be helpful for us to think about it a little bit broader because there are all kinds of things in our culture that we place sacred status to, right? Like money and family and kids and career and our plans or, or whatever. It's like when, whatever's at the top of our totem, whatever's the most important thing in our life, it will rule our lives. And it affects the way we spend our money. It affects the way we spend our time. We govern our lives around that. The person who, you know, seeks power is controlled by power. The person who uh, seeks acceptance is controlled by the men and women that they're trying to gain the approval of. The, the, and the, the truth is we don't control ourselves. We're controlled by the Lord of our lives. Pastor and author uh, Tim Keller says, says it this way. The biblical concept of idolatry is an extremely sophisticated idea, integrating intellectual, psychological, social, cultural, and spiritual categories. There are personal idols such as romantic love and family, or money, power, and achievement, or access to particular social circles, or emotional dependence of others on you, or health, fitness, and physical beauty. Many... Look to these things for, for the hope, meaning, and fulfillment that only God can provide. By the way, this book that I'm quoting right here, it's called Counterfeit Gods by Timothy Keller. If this whole concept of like contemporary idolatry, if this, if this is kind of new to you or if you've never read this book, I highly recommend it. Uh, this book recommendation could be the very best thing you get from the sermon. Um, so if you've not read it... I recommend it because we are all prone to this. We are all prone to place our trust in lesser things for the hope and the meaning and the life that only God can give. And when we do that, that is the first step in a cycle that causes us all kinds of pain. So, step one is deal with the nature of idolatry. We are all prone to to this and to say we're not is just lying to ourselves. The second thing I think is really good to see, um, is helpful to see out of the book of Judges, is this that repentance and the desire for pain relief are not the same thing. What we see in Judges is not true repentance. And that's why, it's one of the reasons why the cycle just repeats over and over and over. What they wanted was pain relief and alleviation of consequences. And there's a huge difference between that and repentance, because when our desire is just about pain relief and consequence avoidance, it's really easy to go back to wherever we were once the pain and the consequences are gone. I mean, think about a young Christian couple, college couple that are dating each other, and they know that God's plan for sex is to be enjoyed within the context of marriage, but they, they, but they begin to engage sexually. And then there's a scare. She's late. And he gets a phone call that she might be pregnant. And this young, these young believers, they become the most spiritual people on the planet. And they start praying and they're pleading with God and they're making promises and resolutions that things are going to change. And then they get the pregnancy test. And in this, and in this case, it's negative and they're a big sigh of relief. 
at least that consequence, you know, has been avoided. How, how long do you think the resolution towards purity is going to last? I mean, if it was just about pain avoidance and consequence avoidance, probably not very long. And we can, you know, play that scenario out in any area of life. Repentance is at its heart, it's about you're going one way and you stop and you turn and you go another way. It is about movement. It's not about feeling. It's not about feeling sorry. It's not about feeling repentant, whatever that means. Um, It's not even about agreeing with God that something is wrong, which is called confession. And confession is super, super important. I mean, God makes all kinds of promises about our confession. Later, Paul would say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which is incredible. And as important as confession is, as incredible as confession is, it doesn't break the cycle. Repentance does. And confession and repentance are not the same thing. But repentance is especially hard because it involves taking actual steps, tangible steps toward change. Scary steps. It could mean actually changing my environment or changing my schedule or making changes in my relationships. Or it could mean reaching out to a friend or a counselor so that this private, secret area of my life isn't private and secret anymore. Or it could mean starting some spiritual practice or starting to do something that breaks me out of my addiction to comfort and my own you know, self-centeredness and I start serving others or something like that. And it is scary or it's just doing that thing that we sort of are prompt we have the sort of prompt in our head that we know we should do and just don't want to do because you know oftentimes when we're stuck in a cycle and we know we're in a cycle and we're praying to God for help oftentimes there is sort of a prompt in our head something that that we know would be helpful for us to do but man it seems like a it seems pretty extreme or it just seems scary or kind of a step of last resort. And you say, oh man, I just don't want to have to do that. I'm just going to try and manage things as they are and you know, just get out of this pain or discomfort or, or consequence or, or something like that. Repentance is mustering up the courage to take that first step in that new direction and then trusting in God's strength to sustain us on a new path. I am convinced that the main thing that prevents us from enjoying God's blessing is not our lack of strength. It's our lack of courage and a lack of faith in God's strength. Um, You know, one one of the things that we see in Judges, one of the things that we see in our own life, is that God's call to his people, both then and now, is to combine spirituality with bravery. And we, while we're waiting for, um, we feel like we're waiting on God to change our circumstances, to make some big change, to, to, re, to relieve the pain, to relieve the consequence, or to take away temptation. God is, meanwhile, waiting on us to take that bold step of faith that he's been prompting us to take. 
back in the, in the book of Joshua. Um, when the people are going to enter into, they're going you know, towards the promised land, they were going to have to cross the Jordan River carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which is a scary proposition because if you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, you don't mess with that thing, you know? And God says, I am going to, I'm going to dam up the river so that you can walk on dry land. But he would not do so until the priest carrying the ark actually stepped into the water. They had to get their feet wet. They had to make that first scary step. God is not going to repent for us. But he will meet us there. So the first thing we see about ending this cycle is coming to grips with the fact that we are all prone to idolatry. We are all uh, prone to trusting in lesser things, and that just sort of gets us in trouble. And the second thing is to recognize that, that repentance is not about pain relief. It's not even about confession. It's about movement. It's about taking tangible steps. And God will prompt us, and he will sustain us, and he will encourage us, but he's not going to do it for us. We have to take that step. And then the third thing is something that we actually noticed in that first verse that we looked at, and that is the nature of the cycle. If we're going to understand it, the cycle is built on a failure of memory. God begins, he says, I I brought you up out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give your ancestors. And I said I would never break my covenant with you. It's as if he is telling them, you must have forgotten who I am and what I have done and what I have said. Over and over and over in the Bible, God tells his people, don't forget, do this in remembrance. And he'll like tell people in the Old Testament like to do things like, you know, set up memorial stones, like these piles of stones where they can, to anyone who sees it, can remember, oh yeah, this is, this is that place, or this is the thing that we're supposed to remember about God and what he did for us, or what he did for me. Or he would tell them to, to have a feast or a festival and to celebrate it every single year just as a remembrance. In fact, every single feast and festival in the Old Testament is for the purpose of memory. The feast of uh, Passover and unleavened bread and first fruits and Pentecost and the feast of trumpets and the day of atonement and the feast of booths. They're all for memory. God's saying, do not forget, do not forget, do not forget who I am or, or, or what I've done. And for us, you know, week after week, we come into these spaces and we, we open God's word together and we worship together. And when we worship, it's not for the purpose of learning something new. We do it for proclamation, but we also do it when, when we sing, we are reminding ourselves and we're reminding each other of truths that we simply cannot afford to forget. The biggest example in the New Testament is, is communion, where Jesus commands us, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. And it And and God tells us these things because he just knows how prone we are to forget. And I see it in my own life. I get so preoccupied by things and days turn into weeks and weeks turn into months. And while technically I still know things, truths about God and what he has done, it's not in my consciousness. And so functionally I live as though I've just forgotten. 
So find a way to remember. I, I know people that do the memorial stone thing. You know, they set up a pile of stones that's in their backyard or in their office or, or something like that. That's a constant reminder to them of some truth that they associate with that, some truth about God or what he has done. Or um, keep a journal of what's going on in your life and what God is doing and look back over it regularly. Or read your Bible regularly and don't get discouraged if you're not always learning something new because it's not always about learning something new. Or make it a priority to be here every weekend so we could worship together. And let me just encourage you that when it's time to sing, let me just plead with you. Don't just stand there. This isn't a concert. Our worship leaders work really hard to to present and give us songs that are super easy to learn. Because they want to put words into our mouths so that they help us become the worshipers. And when we do that, we bring glory to God. And we also are using our very own mouths to remind us of things that we simply cannot afford to forget. And let me just say, I mean, if you're not a good singer, that's okay. We turn it up loud enough. We can't tell. If you're singing off-key or not, um, you're all good. Memory, repentance, and idolatry. Our cycle is their cycle because our struggle is their struggle. They didn't remember. They didn't repent, not fully And they fell into idolatry again and again and again. And so the cycle repeats over and over and over, 12 times throughout the book. And in that that way, it's kind of a depressing book. But in another light, it's so encouraging that even though they're stuck in this cycle 12 times, every time they call out to God, God hears them, and he responds, and he intervenes, Each time they're in a mess of their own making and they cry out to God in their mess and God hears them. And that is so encouraging. You would think that God would just get fed up and stop listening and just turn his back on these faithless, stupid people. But he didn't. And he doesn't in our lives either. And so if you hear that voice in your head that says, why do you keep making the same mistakes? You are so stupid. How many times are you going to confess the same sin, you worthless idiot? Why can't you just get your act together? Whenever, if you ever hear a voice like that in your head, you can rest assured that that is not God speaking to you. God does not talk to us that way. But we do have an enemy who would love nothing more than for us to wallow in shame and guilt to the point that we are too embarrassed to turn toward God. That we're too embarrassed to pray. In Jesus' story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, um, after the prodigal uh, hurts his family and squanders his inheritance and makes a complete and total mess out of his life, um, he makes a decision that he's going to turn toward home and he begins to recite this 
speech that he's going to give to his father about how sorry he is. But then when he appears on the horizon, the father sees him and runs to him and embraces him and covers him in kisses and accepts him home and welcomes him back fully and completely. Lesson being, if we turn toward God, he will run toward us. And he does so again and again and again and again. And so if this cycle sounds familiar, or maybe if the repetition of this cycle is so familiar it sounds like your life story, um, it doesn't matter. God is not surprised that we cycle like this. He knows that we're weak. He offers himself to us. He is for us. And he offers his faithfulness in our lives. And he invites us to trust him. And it is never, ever, ever too late. He invites us to trust him first and foremost. Instead of all of these lesser things that keep letting us down. And he invites us to put him first in our lives. And then find him to be faithful. And he's inviting us to take a bold step in a new direction toward life and and health, away from the destructive patterns we've been living in, or away from our own selfishness or addiction to comfort, or toward some life-giving thing. And he's going to encourage us, he's going to prompt us, and he's going to sustain us, but he's not going to do it for us. And he's telling each one of us, don't forget who I am. Don't forget what I've done. Do not forget, do not forget, do not forget. I'm going to invite the band uh, back to the stage. Whatever campus you're at right now, I'm going to invite the bands to come back to the stage. Because in just a moment ago, I talked about how the cycle is built on a failure of memory. And that is one of the reasons why we sing together. And so I wanted to end our time just by singing one more worship song. Because the power of God and the faithfulness of God, and the fact that He is at work in our lives even when we don't see it, the fact that He is a way maker, and a promise keeper, and a miracle worker, and a light in our darkness. These are truths we simply cannot afford to forget. And some of us are going to need these truths this week. This week, we're going to have to remember and trust that these things are true. And so we're going to sing... One more time. But before we do, let me just also say this. I know that wherever some of us are in the midst of that cycle, sometimes it's hard to sing. And I get it. I know there have been seasons in my life where it has been so encouraging to hear others sing, to see others worship when I've been too weak to do so on my own. And when we sing together, we are saying together that our God is our God. And these are our truths that we cannot afford to forget. And so if you feel up for singing, sing loud, if not just for you, for the people around you, because we are in this together. I'm going to pray. And then after we pray, let's launch into our week remembering who God is. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are weak people. And we are prone to trust in lesser things and they keep letting us down and we are prone to just seek for 
consequence avoidance and pain relief and not true change. And we are prone to forget the things that are most important in our lives. So as we sing now, I pray that you would remember that you would remind us of these things and that you would help us live according to them this week. In Jesus' name, amen.